The Eagle and Child, Episode 15. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 3, Social Morality. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and on this New Year's Eve, Jack is discussing social morality, how Christians attempt to put do-as-you-would-be-done-by into practice in society. And, as always, I'm joined by a man who always tries to put into practice do-as-you-would-be-done-by, Matt. The key word there is try, and I do appreciate (laughs) you not extending the sentence to try but fall short, because I think that would be equally valid. (laughs) We're getting into how Christianity applies to our lives, which naturally will get a little political, but it is important. I know. (laughs) We've got to be careful. And I do predict, because it gets a little political, it's going to be piercing. And I don't know if you felt this, but as I'm reading it, there were statements that some would make a liberal smile yeah. in a conservative cringe. <laughs> and then there's some that would make a conservative smile in a liberal cr- cringe. So basically, we're going to alienate everybody. Exactly. Or we could unite everyone. Let's look a little bit more optimistically there. <laughs> and actually, this chapter has this conversation on charity that was one of the most beautiful points that I took from this book when I read it first in college. And to this day, it challenges me. And it's always in the back of my mind when I'm thinking through charity from a giving perspective and charity from a life perspective, our time, our energy, our attention, our focus. With that said, let's jump into this episode's quote. All right. What do you got? It's from Lewis's book, God in the Dock. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. (laughs) especially given the fact that this gets into social morality, which is going to make all of us feel uncomfortable. Like Mm -hmm. we talked about conservative or liberal. It needs to pierce us. And Lewis pierces me more than any person outside of Jesus. (laughs) Well, speaking of piercing, we are going to be enjoying the piercing taste of Bonito again. So cheers. Cheers. I really like this. We've been challenged, as we've brought up multiple times, to get into deeper beers. And so my palate, while still vastly inferior to any other beer drinker, has expanded greatly from Shock Top and Blue Moon. (laughs) And you can be assured, listener, we won't be doing Heineken again. Well, we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Are you a Heineken fan? I do like Heineken. It was was my beer from university. In university, I drank Heineken and I drank Guinness. Okay, that was a big step. I mean, is uni in the UK? In in the US, it's Natty Light. It, it, it is definitely not Heineken or Guinness. I, I was a classy late teenager, early twenties. Okay. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot more sense. Well, you just you just look at me now and work backwards a little bit. Yeah, what happened? I don't know. I don't know what went wrong. Alright, let's let's kick things off. Jack kicks off this chapter by saying something that I think may shock a lot of people. Here's what he says. The first thing to get clear about Christian morality between man and man is that in this department, Christ did not come to preach any brand new morality. The golden rule of the New Testament, do as you would be done by, 
is a summing up of what everyone, at bottom, had always known to be right. As Dr. Johnson said, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. So the Dr. Johnson he's talking about here is Dr. Samuel Johnson, who was an 18th century writer, essayist, and a poet. Now, I definitely know some Christians who would argue that Jesus came to teach something brand new, and they use this to argue in favor of Christianity. But funnily enough, counterwise, I've known non-Christians who argue that Jesus taught nothing new, and this, they see, is therefore an argument against Christianity. I've heard this a lot, and even read a book called The Breath of God that made this argument. It was looking at the time before Jesus's ministry, when he was 33, which we know very little about. There's, what, a couple of verses in the Gospel of Luke or John? Uh, it's Luke, the finding the temple when he's there we 12. Go. And so this mysterious period, and it made the case that he studied Buddhism. <laughs> and it didn't really have much to defend it, but it... Long story short, it had parallelisms between his sayings and the sayings of the Buddha. And it is uncanny how close they are. But given what we learned in book one, we shouldn't really be that surprised. Yes, we, there, there is no reason to be surprised by that. If the law of morality has been placed in us, if the image of God is in us, you would expect that. Mm. As Lewis says, real moral teachers are not innovators. They don't come up with really new stuff. It's the quacks and the cranks. Those are the people that come up with a brand new idea. The quacks and the cranks. I like that. <laughs> it's certainly true that the variants of the golden rule, the do as you would be done by, that they existed prior to Jesus. In fact, I love pointing out that Jesus' line about loving your neighbor as yourself, it actually comes from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Leviticus in chapter 18. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. However, what I think we could say is that Jesus widened and deepened the teaching. In particular here, I'm thinking of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus helps us answer the question, who is my neighbor? Lewis's main point stands, though. We need to be reminded far more than we need to be instructed. And that actually reminds me of Paul's letter to the Philippians. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, To write the same things to you is not irksome to me, but safe for you. Basically, I'm not teaching you anything new, but I'm reminding you of what you need to know, because this is a good thing for you. Actually, when I went looking for that quotation, because I had a video series on Philippians, so I went looking for it, and in my notes for it, I actually found this quotation from Mere Christianity right next to it. It's a revolving door. It goes back and forth. <laughs> when you're talking about Mere Christianity, you bring scripture in. When you learn about God, you bring Mere Christianity in. Exactly. And I'm also reminded of something that was said by Mark Hall. He's the lead singer of my favorite Christian band, Casting Crowns. His line was, We're trained well beyond our level of obedience. Why do you need to learn more things about morality when you don't even do do as you would be done by well. Basically, we, we don't have a knowledge problem, we have an obedience problem. We don't really take Jesus seriously with what he says. This brings me back to the beginning of this series. You remember when we were talking about and answering the question in our opinion of, is mere Christianity enough? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer was nuanced. No, in the sense that God has taught us a lot more and revealed a lot more to us. But yes, in the sense of, we can go deeper in all this knowledge, but at the end of the day, if we just 
could live out mere Christianity, we would probably be doing a lot better than all of us are doing right now anyways. Yeah, I think my halo would be a good deal shinier if, I, if I lived out just the stuff Lewis is talking about. We're not even doing the basics very well. Wow, this is depressing. Yeah. Okay, let's. Uh, we said that this was an episode where Lewis is going to irritate a lot of people and he's going to make people feel inadequate. So he's doing a fantastic job with us at the moment. <laughs> and now we'll bring that to the political part that we're referencing. But he starts in the beginning by saying, Christianity, it's not a political program. No. It's not this detailed set of rules. And he explains this very well. So I'll use his words here. When Christianity tells you to feed the hungry, it does not give you lessons in cookery. When it tells you to read the scriptures, it does not give you lessons in Hebrew, in Greek, or even in English grammar. I love that last bit. Or even English grammar. Christianity isn't a political party, although I'm sure some people think that it is. It doesn't have detailed instructions on the minutiae of life. Now, there are actually religions that will do that. And I'm thinking of some forms of Judaism and, in particular, Islam. There are, there are very specific rulings on the nitty-gritty, on all the small details of life. But Christianity doesn't do that. Lewis, however, says that Christianity was never intended to replace or supersede the ordinary human arts and sciences. It is rather a director which will set them all to the right jobs, and a source of energy which will give them all new life. And I just think this is beautiful. Far from re replacing all of our human activities... It gives us direction and energy. In theology, we often talk about grace building upon nature. Jack begins to irritate people a lot now. <laughs> He's really on a roll today. <laughs> he is. He says that some Christians complain, saying that the church should give us a lead. But here's how he responds to that. When they say that the church should give us a lead, they ought to mean that some Christians those who happen to have the right talents should be economists and statesmen and be directed to putting do as you would be done into action. Yeah, so often when people talk about the church taking a lead or the church doing, they're talking explicitly about the bishops. Now the bishops have an immensely important role. They have care for souls. They're charged with governing the church, but they are not the entirety of the church. And it is amazing how much you hear people wanting them to give you the guidance. As if the bishops are all expert economists, or statesmen, or novelists, or musicians. I would rather, about immigration, hear from someone who's studied immigration, who's lived through it, who's been in it, but has a very Christian worldview. And is, attempt, and is attempting to apply Christian principles in this area. And we can have multiple people debating how that's done. Mm -hmm. Because there are areas where two Christians can legitimately disagree. So we could have someone trying to solve the issue of immigration or poverty and somebody else who is also trying to solve the same thing, also trying to apply do as you would be done by, but they have different means and they can legitimately argue about which means is more effective. So going forward, we should be saying when the church ought to take the lead on this, we should be referring to the church as the body of Christ, the people, not just the bishop, the priest, the pope, all of us. It's not the job of clergy to do everything. And if I actually had to summarize the Second Vatican Council, I would say this was the main point. The main point is the people of God, all Christians everywhere, they are called to help usher in the kingdom. And I actually wanted to read a little section from Lumen Gentium, paragraph 38, that really hammers this home. 
Each individual layman must stand before the world as a witness to the resurrection and life of the Lord Jesus Christ and a symbol of the living God. All the laity, as a community, and each one according to his ability, must nourish the world with spiritual fruits. They must diffuse in the world that spirit which animates the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, whom the Lord in the gospel proclaimed as blessed. In a word, Christians must be to the world what the soul is to the body. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, that last quotation, that's from one of my favorite works of the early church called the Epistle to Diognetus. It's actually one of the documents that was inspirational in me choosing the name Restless Pilgrim for my blog. And it's actually also one of my personal soapbox topics. Actually, spring next year, I'm going to be in Texas giving a talk on this very issue. The idea of it's up to the laity to go out and find new creative ways to usher in the kingdom. It's not simply expecting the clergy to do all the work. So now let's look at the picture that is painted by the New Testament. And particularly, if listeners are wondering, Acts has a very beautiful description of what a Christian community looks like. Mm -hmm. There are also a few references in here to the epistles to the Thessalonians. Yes. But this is what Jack says. The New Testament, without going into details, gives us a pretty clear hint of what a fully Christian society would be like. Perhaps it gives us more than we can take. It tells us that there are no passengers or parasites. If a man does not work, he ought not to eat. Everyone is to work with his own hands. And what is more, everyone's work is to produce something for good. There will be no manufacture of silly luxuries and then of sillier advertisements to persuade us to buy them. And there is to be no swank or side, no putting on airs. To that extent, a Christian society would be what we'd call leftist. On the other hand, it is always assisting on obedience. Obedience, and outward marks of respect, from all of us to properly appointed magistrates, from children to parents, and, I'm afraid I'm going to be very unpopular, from wives to husbands. Thirdly, it is to be a cheerful society, full of singing and rejoicing, and regarding worry or anxiety as wrong. Courtesy is one of the Christian values, and the New Testament hates what it calls busybodies. When I read that part that he puts in parentheses, this is going to be very unpopular. I was thinking about a previous chapter we were discussing where doesn't he mention Christianity? It's going to be something you don't expect. It's going to be uncomfortable, but you have to obey, which nowadays we always want to pick the faith or denomination that seems to fit best with our views. That's not what it's meant to be. There's truth. We're probably not following it or believing or having the worldview that perfectly aligns with truth. Therefore, it's going to be tough to swallow sometimes, but it's a pill we have to swallow. It goes back to what he says in the preface about choosing your denomination. The questions he says you need to ask, like, are their doctrines true? Is there holiness here? And yeah, you're referring to earlier when he talks about Christianity isn't something that I would have expected, but that's what real things are like. Things are always a little odd. And on that particular point, I don't want to get too distracted by it, all I will say is, particularly that passage in Ephesians, when it talks about husbands and wives, people have this nasty tendency of ignoring everything around that one verse and just taking it in isolation, skipping over what Paul has already said before about being submissive to one another, and in particular on this passage, about the responsibility of husbands to wives, the call to imitate Christ, to lay down your life for your bride. Husbands, if you want to know what being a husband is like, Look at a crucifix. That's what it looks like. Christ laid down his life for the church. You're called to lay down your life for your wife. 
And if anyone wants to dig into this anymore, I really recommend a talk by Brant Petrie. And it's got a wonderful title, Wives Have to Do What? <laughs> that is a good title. I'll put a link in the show notes. To summarize everything you just said there, the husband is supposed to be like Christ. At any point, do you think of Christ as authoritarian dictator? No, it's the opposite. It's incredible self-sacrificial love. What did he do on the night of the Last Supper? But get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of his disciples. Yeah. I've noticed a real trend among Christian weddings that rather than the gartatos, which I'm sorry, I'm going to just say is ridiculous and people need to stop it. <laughs> but rather than the gartatos, the groom washes his bride's feet. Wow. That's a beautiful image. Bringing this back to Lewis, as he's describing this picture of a Christian society, he points out that it's going to seem a bit odd to us. We should feel that its economic life was very socialistic, and in that sense, advanced, but that its family life and its code of manners were rather old-fashioned, perhaps even ceremonious or aristocratic. And he points out that very few of us would like everything in a truly Christian society. He says that some of us would like different bits, but that's what we always do. We always want to pick and choose. And he even said of himself when he was writing this, there were parts that he wanted to leave out. That happens within the Catholic Church. I think particularly in recent years, some people like to make social justice or orthodoxy. So, for example, you can either be pro-life or you can be about care of the poor. And setting up in opposition things that were never meant to be set up in opposition. Jack then talks about the subject of usury. The ancient heathen Greeks, the Jews of the Old Testament, and the great Christian teachers of the Middle Ages told us not to lend money at interest. And it's this lending money at interest, what we call investment, is the basis of our whole system. He then does go on to say, it doesn't actually necessarily follow that we're wrong. And in typical humble Lewis fashion, he says that when he's not sure of something, he says it. And this is one of the cases where he's not entirely decided. This is where we need the economist's help. Exactly. He says, this is a question that I cannot decide on. I am not an economist, and I simply do not know whether the investment system is responsible for the state we're in or not. This is where we want that Christian economist. But I should not have been honest if I hadn't told you that three great civilizations had agreed, or it seems so at first sight, in condemning the very thing which we have based our whole life. Yeah, what do you think of this? I'm in the investment world, very familiar with economics, capitalism, and a strong believer that capitalism has been a very powerful force for change. It's definitely gone wrong in some ways, and it's not a perfect system, and we need to be honest about ways that it's failing us. But overall, I believe it is the right system and just needs to be tuned, I guess, or improved. So I, hearing this, this is piercing me a little bit. Mm -hmm. This is also an area I am not sure about. What I can say is the speaking against usury that you find, and especially the Old Testament, it wasn't actually a blanket ban. There was a ban against usury with regards to the poor or Israelites in general. And... I would say this is how it's always couched. It's couched in terms of social justice. The other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that in antiquity, they viewed money very differently. It was a medium of private exchange rather than commercial exchange. And I think a lot of those shifts in ideas as to what money actually is and how it can work do somewhat change the playing field when we're talking about this entire question. 
off that point, I've read if you weren't storing it for your wealth or using it for private exchange, it was worthless. Today, that's not the case. When you have savings, you can put it in a savings account, which earns a rate of return, and you can, or you can put it in an investment account and purchase shares of a company, which also earns a rate of return. And in both of those situations, it's productively helping the economy. Put it in a bank account, that bank's using it and lending it to someone else to start a business, to create jobs. That was not the case back then. Therefore, if you someone comes to you privately, asks for a loan, and you're putting a rate of return on it, you're using something that was completely unproductive otherwise and almost taking advantage of a friend of yours. Today, when you give it to someone, you are also giving up the opportunity to be productively using it in a different sense. Mm -hmm. And this is the point that Lewis makes. He says, some people say that when Moses and Aristotle and the Christians agreed in forbidding interest, they couldn't foresee the joint stock company and that they were only thinking of this private moneylender. I think that's key. And so one thing that most people agree with, if I'm correct, theologians, when they think of usury, is it actually never meant high rates of return, but it was just rates of return in general. I would probably say today, and I got to be careful here because I'm not speaking for the Catholic faith, but today that, that actually would be a little bit more applicable. Because if I'm earning 5% or 7% in the market and someone wants to borrow from me and I charge them 30%, all right, that's now falling into the same inspiration of what the old times were. Exactly. In the Old Testament, it's about social justice and exploiting the poor. Yeah. When somebody is really in a hole and you offer them a lifeline by lending them money, but you do so in such a way as to exploit them. Yes. Well, think of It's a Wonderful Life. Honestly, we're coming up here with all of these intellectual arguments. That movie really summarized it. Potter versus George Bailey. And every time a bell rings, an angel gets her wings. I am embarrassed to admit, I only watched It's a Wonderful Life the first time ever last night. Oh my goodness. I'm not kidding. We had a conversation at our C.S. Lewis reading group, and it was mainly focused around all of the movies that Matt has not seen. He only recently just started watching Star Wars, for goodness sake. It's bad. Indiana Jones I hadn't seen. Harry Potter is like the only thing that I can claim that I've seen them all multiple times. <laughs> That's not impressing me. I know, but... What's even more sad is when I went to this watching with some friends, the people that were hosting it, I went up to them and I'm like, you know, I've never seen Winter Wonderland out of the blue. And they look at me like, wait, what? They didn't even know how to respond. And I'm looking at them like the movie we're watching tonight. And then it clicks and they go, it's not called Winter Wonderland. It's a wonderful life. <laughs> like, that's how bad this was. Oh, please pray for Matt. I need pray many, many prayers. Okay. So... I just want to wrap up that conversation about usury. If anyone has any very strong thoughts or articles that they think we should read, please tweet us. Please send them to us. It, this is one of those issues where I really know the bare minimum. If you're going to tweet us an article that says investing in the stock market's bad, don't do that. I'm not ready to swallow that pill that my career choice <laughs> has been against Christian faith. It'd be greatly appreciated. Yes. When, if you tweet us, do it in charity. Speaking of which, Jack now starts talking about charity. And this is my favorite, one of my favorite sections of the whole book. Here's what Jack says. Charity, giving to the poor, is an essential part of Christian morality. In the frightening parable of the sheep and the goats, it seems to be the point on which everything turns. So here he's talking about the parable where Jesus speaks of a coming judgment and that he's going to ask 
I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And people say, when did we not do this? Or when did we do this? And Jesus said, as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. This isn't about faith or abstract theology. This is about works of charity. That's Matthew 25, right? Mm -hmm. That's a powerful section. Listeners, if you get a chance to read that, I've always wrestled with that. I've always struggled with that because it does challenge you. I mean, at the end of the day, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our might, and our soul. And some people can make that seem like, well, that's our main priority. So we need to worship. We need to be reverent to the Eucharist. We need to go to Mass, do all of this stuff. Yes, that's not wrong. But loving the Lord your God is working with the least of these, the vulnerable, the marginalized. Essentially, best example, Mother Teresa, the dying and the destitute, her house for that. I mean, unbelievable. I'm reminded of when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before all men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That was what Mother Teresa did. She drew people to Jesus because she could see Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. Now, some people will argue that rather than giving to the poor, we ought to devote our energies to building a society where it isn't necessary. Which makes a lot of sense. It does. And it's a very noble view. You want to fix the problem. You want to fix the root cause rather than just dealing with symptoms. It's essentially the idea of give a man a fish or teach a man a fish. Unfortunately, though, creating that kind of society or teaching a person to fish, in the time being, you might need to feed them too. So he's pointing out that this isn't an either or. Lewis says, if anyone thinks that as a consequence of working towards this kind of society that you cannot stop giving in the meantime, then he has parted company with all Christian morality. Wow. He has parted company with all Christian morality. You miss this one, you're missing the boat. Then the next question is, if I have to care for the poor, if I have to consider charity, how much have I got to give here? Because some Christians will very confidently say it's 10% of your paycheck. And then they'll start arguing as to whether it's pre-tax or post-tax. Which is just sad to think about. It's understandable, but Jack, in a deaf move, just bypasses all of this. He says, I don't believe that we can actually settle how much we ought to give. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. This right here was the quote, the most powerful quote that stuck out to me when I read this my junior year of college, right here. If it's not hampering you, pinching you, you're giving too little. How I interpret that is, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And therefore, if we're living our lives completely as we desire and then only giving excess to the poor, do we really love them as ourselves? Our actions would suggest otherwise. It was said by my former pastor, if you want to know what's important to you, look at your calendar, look at your bank account. Yes. Look where your time goes, look where your money goes. That's where your treasure is. I'm glad you bring that up because most people will say, Look at your time, and that's it. But look <laughs> at the money. Lewis's last point there, when he says that our charity should pinch or hamper us, I think this logic is active when the church encourages us to, say, give something up for Lent, and then take the money that we would otherwise spent on those luxuries, be it our morning coffee or meals out at nice restaurants, for that period of time. Abstain from those things, and take that money that you would have used and instead give it to those who need it more. 
because in that way it is naturally hampering us because normally I would have my morning coffee. Normally I would go out for a nice dinner on a Saturday night. For that period of Lent, I'm not doing that and instead diverting those funds elsewhere. The question going through my mind now is why do we not give more? Is it just because we love luxury? We love nice things? What do you think? Jack says it's not that. And I think he's spot on. And this, this part was the bit that really challenged me. He says it's because of our fear of insecurity. We're afraid, basically, that we will be put into a similar position. We're afraid that we will be in a place where we are not secure and safe. And all of this takes on new life when you learn a little bit about C.S. Lewis himself. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes, but I watched a very long interview with Douglas Gresham, who is C.S. Lewis's stepson. He's the son of Joy Davidman, who Lewis married. And he said that Jack's dictum was given till it hurts, until you're scared about how much you've given, and then perhaps you've given enough. But it's unlikely. That's unreal. You might have given enough, but it's unlikely. Yeah, he, he actually commented that Jack probably gave away about two-thirds of his royalties. Wow. But despite all of this, he actually lived with an abject fear of poverty that he inherited from his father. And his father was well-to-do. I think he was a lawyer. Yeah. But he was terrified of ending up in the workhouse. Now, the workhouse hadn't existed since, I think, 1918, 1919, around that time. But Lewis was still scared of that. So when he's writing here about our fear of security, he's writing from a very real place. Another way of looking at this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. He talks about the concept of belief and obedience being not mutually exclusive, but together. If you want to have faith and believe in God and Christ, you have to have an extreme obedience. And so a lot of times God will call us into a position that requires that. And he explains that or demonstrates that through the parable of the rich young man in, I believe, the Gospel of Luke. He takes it more literally than we would. A lot of times we try to explain that just saying, you can't be attached to your money. It's okay to have it, but as long as you're not attached to it. Well, no, a lot of times calls like that for the rich young man's example are to call us into a place of insecurity where we are forced to have faith and believe in Jesus Christ. And Lewis certainly lived this out. There's a story that Douglas tells when he was walking in Oxford, and he thinks he was with Tolkien, I think. And a guy comes up, a panhandler, and asks him for money. And Lewis just reaches into his pockets and just pours all the change that he's got into this guy's hands. And as they're walking away, Tolkien says, Jack, you really shouldn't have done that. He's just going to spend that money on beer. And Lewis responds, well, that's what I was going to spend it on. <laughs> People really should watch the video. It's a very cool, powerful section. But just on that point, obviously we want to be prudent. Elsewhere in Mere Christianity, Lewis says that we should pay attention to where we're pouring our money. Mm -hmm. But there is still that essential principle of Jesus tells us to give to the poor. That's what we need to be doing. And in the same way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that we sometimes explain passages away a little bit too quickly, I think it's very easy in the Christian life to explain away our lack of charity too quickly. Well, I'm not sure if I should give to that person or that institution. I'll have to do some more research. And then it never happens. My favorite one, what if a better opportunity comes? Or if I can save this and build it into more wealth and then give it down the road? I mean, that's, that's really just justifying it away. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not all or nothing. 
Absolutely. But at the same time, I probably do it more often than I don't. Yeah, the excuses we tell ourselves and we accept perhaps just a little too easily. So we now draw to the close of this chapter, and Lewis basically admits that he's probably irritated a lot of people. That there are some parts of this that the people on the left really like, and there are some parts of this on the right that people really like, but also that neither of them are going to be happy. They either think he said too much or not enough. But he offers this stinging, although not unfair, assessment. He says that we seek validation, not understanding. Most of us are not really approaching the subject in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching it in the hope of finding support from Christianity for the views of our own party. We are looking for an ally where we are offered either a master or a judge. Wow. He's essentially explaining the psychological principle of confirmation bias. We see what we want to see. Mm -hmm. and we throw all the rest out. Exactly. And that's why, say, in the States, you have people on both sides of the aisle. You have Democrats and you have Republicans that end up polarizing what is Christianity. Christianity is not one individual party. And so what we need to do is try and be honest when we come to Christianity and see what Christianity says. A few episodes ago, I spoke about Hugh Hefner and about how I shared an article following his death. And what was wonderful about it was I had people attacking me on both sides. People saying I was being too harsh and judgmental. Some people saying I was letting him get off scot-free. And to be fair, this was Christopher West, not me. But either way, I got attacked on both sides. And in the discussion that followed, and like most social media discussions, it obviously went off into different areas as well. I remember one person commenting, hey, how can you be arguing against me about this and her about that? And I remember saying, wait, can't I disagree with both of you? I try and take a Christian outlook to this issue, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to agree with left or right. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm always going to align myself with a political party, regardless of their position. So where does all this leave us? We've been talking about this principle of do unto others as you would have be done to yourself. How does this apply to society? We've gone into some different tangents, so how do we bring this full circle? Well, I'd just like to end by quoting Lewis, because I think he just draws this all together beautifully. And I think he also presents the ridiculous situation he finds himself in. He says, nothing whatever is going to come of such talks unless we go a much longer way round. I may repeat, do as you would be done by till I'm black in the face, but I cannot really carry it out until I love my neighbor as myself. And I can't learn to love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we are driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters. For the longest way round is the shortest way home. I think with that beautiful quote that summed it all up, I hear the last call bell. Yep. And as always, the outline will be in the show notes. Please like, share and subscribe. In addition to the usual places, we are now also on Stitcher and TuneIn. And if you'd like to contact us, there's always the website, restlesspilgrim.net, our Twitter handle, at PintsWithJack. I've been loving the tweets recently. I've had tweets from people who have been cleaning the house at the weekend, listening to our voices. That was a great one. <laughs> I really appreciated that. If that person's listening again, thank you. And we'll see you in 2018. When we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs>